7 tonight, and we're going to be talking about Stephen, one of my favorites um, in the book of Acts. I promise I'll try to keep you here not long. Jesus said he's coming back soon, and so I'm going to use that same word. I'll be done soon tonight. So some of you got that, some of you didn't. So again, in this series, uh, Timeless Values, we're asking the question, if the leader of the early church were to show up in our church today, tonight, what would they say? Would they be surprised, disgusted, excited, joyful, uh, frustrated, confused? What kind of advice or counsel would they give us? And do we value the same things they value from Uh, So far, we've looked at Peter. Peter's told us that we need to daily rely on the Holy Spirit to work through us. Barnabas, from last week, reminded us that we must keep the mission moving forward. I think that this is what Stephen's assessment would be for us tonight. Be prepared to witness. Be prepared to witness. You know, Acts is a highly geographical book. And it demonstrates to the reader, one of the important things it does, it demonstrates to the reader the physical progress of the gospel as it travels from Jesus in Jerusalem all the way to the Gentiles in Rome, some 1,800 miles away. And Luke structures the entire book of Acts with these seven progress reports. And if you were to read all the seven progress reports, you would see how the gospel progresses here. The gospel progresses here, and it goes on to here, and so forth. All seven are detailing the progress into these new areas. But the problem is, is that if the gospel is going to infiltrate into these new areas, people have got to be the ones to take it there. It's, it's, it's most basic. And so you see the book of Acts is not just concerned with how the gospel message is taken to Jerusalem. It's, or excuse me, to Rome. It's the who that takes it there, okay? So in the book of Acts, we call these who's, uh, not uh, Dr. Seuss who's, but we call these who's witnesses, okay? So witnesses. And outside the apostles themselves, Stephen is one of the most significant ones that we find in the entire book of Acts. And like the apostles, Stephen was not a fan favorite of the religious establishment, In fact, his famous speech in Acts chapter 7, which we'll look at tonight, is the longest one in the book of Acts, and it's a speech that literally cost him his life. And his martyrdom, his death, starts a widespread persecution in the early church. But when you look at the whole thing of the book of Acts, the persecution is a good thing. And we say, well, how does that math work? You know, God's math is always different than our math. You ever figured that out yet? You know, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 Blessed are the persecuted. Here's the math. The widespread persecution of the early church forced the church to move outside of Jerusalem. And in, so, in doing so, the gospel reached to the furthest parts of the world. And Christ predicted this would happen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, you're going to be my witnesses. And the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem. It's going to go to Judea and Samaria. And it's going to go to the rest of the world. And guess what? It happens exactly the way that Jesus said it would happen. Okay. So Stephen's ministry in the book of Acts demonstrates what it means to be one of those witnesses. And while we live in a different culture and time, lessons from his 
rather short ministry here are, are universal. So like I've been doing with each one of our characters, with Peter and with Barnabas, I've got five points that I want to stress tonight with Stephen. So the first thing is in Acts chapter 6. I know I had you turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 6. The first point here is that Stephen's witness is energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know we've already talked about this at length a little bit. We studied the work of the Spirit in Peter's life. We noticed a few occasions where Peter could speak as a witness because of the Holy Spirit's empowerment. He was able to step up to the plate and just speak as the Holy Spirit gave him power. And most notably in Acts chapter 4 and verse 8, where Peter is before the Sanhedrin, the same group of religious leaders that he was afraid of, the same group of religious leaders that were responsible for crucifying Jesus. But this time, not only does he step up and preach Jesus, but he also calls out their blindness for not realizing that they won, the one they crucified was the promised one. Okay? So Peter has already given us a little bit of the idea of what it means to be energized, to be filled with the Spirit, for allowing the Spirit to take control in those situations. Now, the New Testament is filled with metaphors of what it looks like when a person is filled with the Spirit. Um, We might say that someone who's clothed in the full armor of God is someone who is filled with the Spirit. We might say someone who has presented his body to God as his spiritual worship, Romans 12, is someone who's filled with the Spirit. We might call someone who's denied himself and taken up his cross and followed Christ as someone who is filled with the Spirit. Or we could also talk about the character and behavior of an officer of the church as someone who is energized and empowered by the Spirit. And Stephen, he would fit the bill for all of those descriptions. But Luke doesn't have any of those descriptions. Luke simply abbreviates his maturity level at a very minimum. He says he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. That's it. Just one simple line. And when we meet Jesus face to face, you know, we're all anticipating the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But what about the here and now? You know, what about the witness that we have to others? Do they see us as full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit? And and again, I know this might be a redundant point, but we all just have to be constantly reminded of the helper, the Holy Spirit. Our witnessing efforts, our conversations oftentimes are in vain if we're not asking him for help. And part of that is just starting out the day, allowing the Holy Spirit saying, Lord Jesus, I don't want to be controlled by the world. I don't want to be controlled by the things of the world. I want to be controlled by the Spirit each and every day. And, and, and I think also sometimes we miss the simple truth that the story we are telling others by means of witnessing, it's not really our story. I mean, it is in some stretch of the imagination, but it's not our story. The story belongs to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're the ones that are the main characters. So practically speaking, it might go a long way with the Holy Spirit to get approval of the version of the story that you want to tell. It might not be the best idea to present a bad version of witnessing to others and then ask the Holy Spirit to fix it up all nice and make it work. But sometimes he does that. And what I'm getting at is is this need for preparation. Remember, be prepared to witness. And the preparation part, oh man, the preparation part is so vital. Most of us wouldn't go out and make a major purchase without preparation, right? Like a vehicle, for example. 
Many of us will do, what, hours upon hours upon hours of research trying to figure out, is this the right vehicle? Is this the right one I need? And, uh, are, are all these features in this vehicle, is this what my family needs? Can we afford this? We do all of that. Deciding on what, be, what vehicle to buy is not a major decision compared to eternity. It's not. But preparing yourself with the Holy Spirit's help before talking to someone about Jesus is a major decision that can affect a person's destiny. So I guess the convicting question needs to be, do we plan more for a car buying conversation than we plan for a witnessing conversation? You want to be really convicted about something, about the meaningless decisions that you spend more time on? Do a study of the word preparation in Scripture. And you need to start at the very beginning Start in Genesis chapter 3, because right after mankind's sin, God prepared a plan to fix what mankind messed up. Actually, you might need to go back a little further, because Revelation tells us that salvation was prepared before the foundations of the world. Jesus hasn't, hasn't come back yet. Why? Because he's preparing a place for you. And I don't want to rush that. Anyway, you get the point. Go through Scripture and do a study on preparation and you talk about how convicting it is all that God has planned and prepared for us and when we have an opportunity to give out the gospel to explain the plan to someone else a lot of times we aren't prepared for it the second part of what Stephen is saying here Stephen's witness is energized by the Holy Spirit and this is the main part Stephen was able to explain the story he was able to explain the story. Now, if I don't get past this point, I'm sorry, but it might actually end up this way tonight. Stephen was able to explain the story. And this is one of the things that I absolutely love about Stephen's speech is that it's the underdog speech, okay? It's the speech that you hear when you're watching a movie that just causes everybody to get up and do something. It's the underdog speech because it vindicates Christianity is what it does. And vindication means to be free from allegation or blame. The larger issue is that the religious leaders didn't believe this Jesus-following movement called Christianity was consistent with what Old Testament Judaism taught. They thought they were two separate things, two separate belief systems. Christianity was of lower quality, of lower value, less significant than our Old Testament Judaism, they'd say. And so the genius of what Stephen does is that he doesn't poke holes in their system. Rather, he tells them that their belief system prevented them. Their actual belief system prevented them from recognizing the Messiah. Their thousand years of religious tradition, the traditions themselves have become a God to them. That's the point he's trying to make. Their traditions have become a God to them. And when the real God shows up in the flesh... They don't recognize him because he didn't fit their man-made system. Didn't look like they thought he would. The Old Testament sacrificial system, along with the tabernacle, was always designed to be temporary. And it was designed to point to Jesus. But what actually happened is that whole belief system itself became more important than Jesus. I mean, how many times do you remember reading in the Gospels and Jesus is talking to the religious leaders? And he's saying, listen... The word of God is more important than your oral traditions, than your oral laws. You see, they 
believed that their man-made traditions and laws were more important than the actual words of Scripture. And this is what they debated with constantly. Now, in the direct context of Stephen's speech, this new movement of Christianity, it was a threat to Judaism, okay? Because it was promoting the idea that the temple was not needed anymore, right? Because now we have Jesus. And the message of salvation now can go out from Israel to other nations. It can go out. And so we got to understand that a fundamental belief for the Jewish religious leader is that God is, is, is intricately attached to the physical promised land. Attached to the physical terra firma, the physical land, the physical earth. We might hear them say something like this. There's only one way that God can work in the world, and it's through the Jewish people and the land of Israel and the temple. They were very, very physically minded of the, of, of the promised land. And, and that is in Scripture. That, that is part of Scripture. But what Stephen does, and, and again, the genius of what he does is he goes to the Old Testament Scriptures, the ones these religious leaders spent their very lives studying, okay, and shows them what they missed. You know that in Stephen's speech, in, in chapter 7 alone, there are 111 references, 111 references and allusions to the Old Testament. Just in chapter 7 alone, 38 times from Genesis, 39 times from Exodus, 7 times from 2 Chronicles, 4 times from Deuteronomy, 1 Kings and the Psalms, 3 times from Isaiah, 2 times from Numbers, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, Jeremiah, Amos, and 1 time from Leviticus and Joshua. That's 111 times in just one New Testament chapter. You think Stephen is trying to tell us something? <laughs> he is absolutely trying to tell us something. He's trying to tell us that the Old Testament is absolutely essential for our understanding of the New Testament. He is trying to remind us. Now you say, well, Stephen didn't have the New Testament that was written. Well, you're right. He didn't have the New Testament. It wasn't written at that time. But 111 times from one chapter alone... He's trying to show us that this movement called Christianity is fully consistent with what the Old Testament teaches. And what he does is he interprets the whole Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. The religious leaders didn't interpret it, the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. They interpreted it through their own belief system that was blinded. And so the key here is understanding that what Stephen does... He's able to get up and speak in front of these rabbis and all these scholars. And essentially, he says, let me explain to you what you missed. Now, can you imagine if that were the case? Like, what if this were a group of preachers in this entire room? And I got up here and says, now, listen, you guys have been teaching the Bible all wrong. Let me tell you what you've missed. How well do you think that would go over? You probably have some of them get up and leave. Some of them heckle. Maybe, I don't know what, I would never say that, but just to give you an idea of what it feels like, what it would have felt like to be there. And so this is what he does. So he starts with Abraham. So in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, he starts with Abraham. And I'm not going to read this section. I'm going to just highlight a few things. If you read the section carefully, though, in your own time, you realize how many times God's name shows up. Because... The key to Israel's history is not Abraham. The Jewish people love to talk about Abraham. It's not about Abraham. It's about the God of glory. 
It's about God. Abraham was a man of lifelong faith who dared to change his life pattern in obedience to God. He left his father's house, his father's country. He moved out into a land he had never seen before. He didn't own a square foot and had no children. He still trusted that God would do what God promised he would do. And Stephen says, in effect, listen, Abraham, your father, your Jewish father, he was a man of faith who dared to welcome enormous change because of his obedience to God. Why can't you accept that change? In Acts 7, verses 9 through 19, he moves to the story of Joseph and his family. And so what he does is he goes back through the Old Testament, through the narrative, and he just explains he talks about the story of Joseph and his family. And he does this because there's some prize, there's, there's, there are some surprising similarities between Jesus and Joseph. You look at verse 9 in Acts chapter 7 and look at what it says. And the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. It's a familiar phrase. It's a key to it. God was with Joseph Yet Joseph was rejected by his brothers. God was with Joseph. He was not with the other brothers. God appointed Joseph to be ruler in Egypt, and his brothers couldn't even find food. Stephen's highlighting this pattern of rejection of God's chosen leaders, like the religious leaders had rejected Jesus. It's only on the second trip, right? You remember the story? The second trip that his brothers recognize the identity of Jesus, uh, the identity of Joseph, excuse me. And as scripture says, it's the second time, the second coming, when Jesus will be recognized by his Jewish nation. The entire nation of Israel goes down to Egypt. God was not with them in their land. He was with Joseph in the land of Egypt, a foreign land. It was in the land of Egypt that God sustained them, protected them. All of God's special acts of deliverance were outside the land. The point is that God can work anywhere. He's not solely tethered to the promised land. Just like God can work anywhere in this world. He's not solely tethered to the church. He can work anywhere. Like Abraham, Joseph accepted the radical changes in his life. Joseph didn't want to be thrown into prison. Joseph didn't want to be thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. I don't think he had that on his list of, of, of things he wanted to accomplish in his life. But he accepted the change. Why can't you religious leaders? I can hear Stephen saying. Then Stephen goes after the big dog. He goes after Moses. And he devotes a major portion of his speech in Acts 7, verses 17 to 43. It's a large section. It's broken up in three 40-year periods. And the first period of Moses' life was in Egypt. He was trained in Egypt. Again, another example of preparation. The second half of Moses' life finds him trying to become the leader of the Israelites. If you know the story, his own strength. But they fear that he has an ulterior motive. He comes out and tries to be the leader in his own strength, and it doesn't work. He retreats to the desert to what? Spend more time in preparation, doesn't he? In the final period of Moses' life, he finds himself looking at a burning bush and getting some instructions from God at the ripe old age of 80. God calls him and says, I need you to go to Egypt and get my people out of Egypt. Can you imagine at 80 getting that command? But something is said of preparation. It seems that Stephen 
reminds his listeners that Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection set the people free. But they still wanted to return to their rules and regulations under the law, which is one of the major themes of Hebrews. Remember when the people came out of Egypt and they were all excited and God did all these miracles with them? And then after a while, they started complaining and saying, we want to go back. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back. The same thing is happening here. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection set the people free. But now the people are like, I think we should just go back under the old system because they were being persecuted. And since they can't go back to Egypt, they bring the gods of Egypt with them, don't they? By constructing a golden calf to worship. And don't miss this. Who was it that, that constructed the golden calf? It was Aaron who led them to idolatry. I wonder if the high priest of the Sanhedrin was listening here to Stephen's speech. As he said, it was the high priest that led them into idolatry. Some thoughts here. And if we thought... Going after Moses was bold, then going after the temple is going to be suicide for Stephen. Look at what he says in verse 44, 44 to 48 of chapter 7. And, and, and let me read this. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought it with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. So God gave the instructions for the tabernacle to Moses, and it was patterned from heaven. The tabernacle was God's plan. David asked God to build a permanent house for him. And God says, okay, David, you want to build a permanent house for me? I'll let you. It wasn't God's idea. It was David's idea. God wanted to tabernacle with his people. It was the purpose of the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was with the people of Israel all the time in the center of the camp, just like the Holy Spirit is with us wherever we go. But as Stephen quotes, Old Testament scripture, God doesn't dwell in houses with human hands. Do you really think, religious leaders, that this temple is the permanent place where God would dwell? No. God doesn't dwell in a house with human hands. The original intent was for the tabernacle to go wherever God's people went. And Stephen concludes his defense here by indicting his accusers. Stephen says that they were stiff-necked a term that Moses, as well as God, used on many occasions to describe the nation of Israel. They were prideful, they were arrogant, they were self-willed. But don't miss the slight change in Stephen's word. He's been comfortable with saying, our fathers, our fathers. Look at what he says in verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always risked the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He changes a little bit here. By rejecting Jesus, the Sanhedrin were doing just what their ancestors, just what their forefathers had done. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. Stephen says, you're just following the pattern. No wonder you rejected Jesus. Stephen says they always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet, he says rhetorically, was there ever a prophet that you didn't persecute? And he says they did this not in ignorance because they had the Old Testament law. 
Stephen squarely places the blame, he does so, on the shoulders of these religious leaders for the betrayal and murder of Jesus, just like Jesus did on the religious leaders. They have no more excuses. Nothing can be offered. You know, there are, in this version of Israel's history, what Stephen does, two Jewish groups, those who accept God's message and messengers and those who reject it. What Acts 7 does, it aligns Stephen with the church, with Abraham, with Joseph, with the prophets and Jesus. And his opponents are aligned with the Egyptians, Joseph's brothers, the rebellious ones in the wilderness who disobeyed Moses, the ancestors who killed the prophets. So for Luke, rather than rejecting God's house or God's law, the church is in line with Jewish history who have sought to keep a covenant with God. So Stephen vindicates Christianity, says this Christian movement, he's telling us the true story. This Christian movement is consistent with what the Old Testament has been teaching from the very, very beginning. You guys just missed the key interpretive uh, linchpin, the, the key interpretive part of the whole story, which was Jesus. You missed it. Because without Jesus as the key, you can't properly understand the Old Testament. And so it, it leads me to say that uh, point number three here, Stephen was enamored with the person of Christ. He knew that Jesus was the key. He was enamored with the person of Christ. And throughout his entire speech, the main point was Jesus and how he was the promised one who came to fulfill the law. He is the Messiah. And Stephen was able to explain the story in such a way. Can you explain the gospel of the message as well as he did? You know, now I was taught, as many of you were, the Romans wrote. And you lead them down the Romans road, right? But really, that's just a starting point, right? I mean, if you have time, tell the whole story. Demonstrate that Jesus that you believe in and follow is not just limited to one specific event in history. you got to start at the very beginning and tell the story. And I encourage you. You talk about wanting to be prepared for witnessing. Now, you might not get an opportunity to sit down and talk with someone and to explain to them the story. But rather than shortchanging the whole effort and saying, here, do this, 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 and this, and then plea for a decision, why not tell the whole story? How many times you read in the scriptures what Jesus, when he wanted to get a point across, what did he do? He told a story. He told a story. He told a story. He told a story constantly. And we have this grand story that we can tell when we witness to others. And a lot of times we just shortchange it and go all the way to the very part of the crucifixion, the resurrection. And again, that's not a bad thing. But why not tell the whole story? Why not start at creation and say that God created everything that there is? There was an intelligent designer who did all this. This world just didn't happen by chance. And mankind is a crowning part of God's creation. And when mankind put Adam and Eve in the garden, they made a mistake. You know, they sinned. And sin entered the human race. And the effects of sin have been passed down to all mankind. But the good news is, is that as soon as mankind made a mistake, God said, I have a plan to fix what mankind has messed up. In the garden. And God said, I promise 
I'm going to send someone to fix that problem. And that person is Jesus. And the rest of the Old Testament is about looking for that promised one to come, expecting him to come, waiting for him to enter the world. The prophets warn us, be prepared for his coming. He could come at any time. And as you close the pages of the Old Testament, there is this anticipation of waiting for him to come to fix what mankind has messed up. But then, there's always that part of the story where you're not sure if the hero's going to win. The 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament. Has God forgotten his promise? Has he forgotten the Jewish people? Has he forgotten that he made that promise all the way back in Genesis? And you open up the pages of the New Testament, and it opens up with this fanatical character called John the Baptist. And John the Baptist steps onto the scene, making an announcement. The promised one is here. He's here. And he's Jesus. And he points them out face to face, say, that's the one there, the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sin problem. That's the one that you ought to be following. Don't follow me. Follow him. And Jesus' ministry lasts for three and a half years on earth. He did miracles and he taught people about living for them. He taught his apostles who wrote the New Testament books that we read today in our Bible. But Jesus knew that his life had one purpose and one purpose alone, to die for the sins of mankind. Because he was the promised one, remember all the way back in Genesis, the promised one that would come and fix what mankind had messed up. And he willingly died on the cross for your sins and mine because that was the only way the sin problem could be fixed because God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. God keeps his promises. And three days later, he rose again. And because I put my faith in him, I too will one day live with him for all eternity because God desires that nobody should perish but that everyone should believe in him and spend eternity with him, not separated from him. But God won't make that decision for you. You've got to make that decision. Why do we shortchange a magnificent story like the gospel message from Genesis all the way to Revelation? Why do we shortchange it? Hey, let me just tell you something. You've got 30 seconds. Let me just tell you. Now, that did, took a little longer than 30 seconds. I get that. But why do we shortchange that? Why don't we say, hey, can I sit down and talk to you? Just give me five minutes and let me tell you the story. Practice the story. Look at yourself in the mirror if you want to and practice it. Work through, take notes, whatever it might be. Listen, the gospel witness that you're giving to them is life-changing to them. Don't you think that you should spend a little bit of time at least preparing a proper presentation so by the time that it actually happens and you're afforded the opportunity, you're not taken back by it. You've worked through it so much, you're like, oh, I know how to do this. And you just go right through it and you tell the story. You know, even if, even if the person you're speaking with doesn't make a decision for Christ, they're going to recognize several things. They're going to recognize first that you believe the Old Testament and the New Testament are all one story. And the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Okay? There's no distinction. They're going to recognize that, hey, the story you teach from Genesis all the way, it's the same. It connects together. A second thing, the God you serve loves people. 
And he's willing to do whatever it takes to make salvation possible, even if it means taking the most valuable possession that he has to offer, his son, and willingly sacrificing him on our behalf. Third, God is the one who's done all the preparation work. Remember, talk about preparation, right? God's the one that's done all the prep work. Salvation is a free gift. It's not earned. They're going to get that from your presentation. And the most important part, probably number four, is that Jesus is the main part of your story. He's the connecting point. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, the story is about him. So sometimes, in the noise of a fast-paced world, we're so eager to give the bullet points of the redemption story rather than taking the time to tell the whole story. You know, they might not believe your story, but at least they'll know what you believe. At least they'll understand that the story that you believe and the story that's a part of your life as a believer in Christ is significant enough for you to take the time to not just say, hey, let me give you the quick 30-second blurb. No, no, I want to take some time and talk with you. Give me five minutes, ten minutes, and let me tell you the whole story so you can get the right picture. I mean, we're talking five or ten minutes. We're talking not that long. Sometimes that fast-paced world that we live in just causes us so many issues, but compared to eternity, I mean, come on, compared to eternity, what does it really matter? I mean, compared to eternity, what does it matter? Well, let me move on. Number four, uh, Stephen expected persecution to come. You know, I guarantee Stephen knew that his speech was going to ruffle some feathers. Jesus told us, expect persecution. Why are we so surprised when we tell people there's only one story, or there's only one way? Ironically, the religious leaders responded just like Stephen predicted, stiff-necked, stubborn, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Look what it says, verse 57. When they heard these things, they were, or 54, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. Let me abbreviate. They acted like toddlers, right? They ran at him squealing, closing their eyes, putting their fingers in their, in their ears and yelling, ah, they don't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear any of what he was saying. You know why? Because they were so convicted to the heart of what they had done. They didn't know what else to do. And let's remember that persecution is not simply physical as it was in Stephen's case. They have many faces. It can be social. Um, today we might call it discrimination. It comes in many forms. Um, sometimes in the forms of slander. Um, that's what they did to Stephen. When they couldn't best him in debate, they started slandering him. They twisted his words. They brought up false accusations of witnesses, lined them up against him. By the way, do you know this is the first time in the book of Acts that the people inside the church are incited against one of their own? A good witness expects persecution to come in all its forms. He anticipates it. He understands it. It's part of his job description. But I don't think he expects it to come from within the church itself. And then number five, lastly, Stephen was eager to pray for his enemies. It seems that the religious leaders just didn't want 
Stephen's convicting words to get into the ears of the crowd any longer. They rushed him, took him outside the city, stoned him on the spot, all without a trial. Sounds like somebody named Jesus, doesn't it? As Stephen was nearing death and stoning, he prays for his enemies, something only that Jesus would do. And the story of Stephen ends rather abruptly. But yet we can still see Stephen's, excuse me, God's hand in all the chaos. Because Stephen's witness is the catalyst for a new explosion of growth in the early church. And you read that this last little part, um, at the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, where it says, Now Saul was consenting at his death. And other translations get the idea that Saul was holding the coat. Okay, Saul was there, who later is Paul in Acts chapter 9. He was there witnessing this whole thing. He held the coats of those, because I guess when you stone somebody, you got to take off your coat. I don't know. But he, he, was stu- he was holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. You ever wonder why Saul didn't pick up a rock and stone Stephen? I mean, he's supposed to be the worst of them all, right? Don't you think he'd be there in the front, stoning Stephen, going after him? And, and I don't know, this is just conjecture on my part. But I think I would say that the faithful witness of Stephen made Paul actually stop and think about what he was missing. Because later on, Acts chapter 8, you know, you've got Philip and Peter and then Philip again. And then Acts chapter 9, you know, Paul's on the road to Damascus Road up to persecute more Christians. Christ shows up and appears on the spot and instantly, I mean instantly, you know, Paul says, okay, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. Now, I'm not doubting Paul's conversion experience. I'm not doubting people today can't get converted in an instant and change their life 180 degrees. But we're talking about Paul, the persecutor of the Christian faith at this time. For him to make a 180-degree turn, I think that there was something with Stephen's speech that got to Paul's heart and did something. I don't know what it did. It did something to him that changed the way he looked at it. And, of course, Indirectly, I think it leads to the salvation of of Paul, and Paul goes on to do great things for God. But the one last part, and I'll end here. I've got lots and lots of stuff. This is one of my favorite sections, as you can tell. The one part of Stephen's speech um, for us to kind of comprehend is that the church has always been God's idea. And I'll end with this. It's always been part of God's plan for it to be this way. Have you ever stopped to consider how witnessing is intrinsically tied to the church? You know, Sunday is that the day the believers all over the globe come to the church. Is the day the person that we are witnesses for rose from the grave, and we are enamored with him. The church couldn't start its witness to the world until the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost. The church then and the church today needs the energizing power of the Holy Spirit to be effective witnesses. Before we leave the church and head out into the world to be faithful witnesses, we're reminded to expect persecution. As we sit here tonight listening to the word of God preached in church, we're equipped, encouraged, and taught how to explain the redemptive plan. We spend time in corporate prayer during church services praying for our enemies. Lord, may we be eager to pray for those who oppose us. You see how intrinsically tied witnessing is to church life. And so I end with just this, is that our witnessing ought to show others how much we value Jesus and his church. 
Our witnessing must be done with prayer and much preparation because you might only get one opportunity with that person. And the more that we fall in love with Jesus, the more we want to learn the whole story. That's why we spend our lifetime reading the scriptures and reading. People in the world probably think we're absolutely crazy. You spend your whole life reading just one book. Yep. It's a big book. It's long. There's lots of stuff in here. (laughs) It's long. But because every time you read it, something more about God's story, about the story of redemption is added to our understanding. And the more we understand that story, the more passionate we're going to be to explain that story, the more prepared we're going to be when we're offered an opportunity. Listen, Stephen, yeah, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and that energizing power helped him to stand up there with courage and strength and to explain the story. But do you think that that just came to him off the top of his head? No, I don't think so. He knew the story. He knew how it all connected. You know, the God we serve is not just the God of the New Testament. He's the God of the Old Testament as well. If we think that he just spent his time throwing the Old Testament together and saying, okay, I'm just done with that. We'll just get rid of that. Jesus is here. Let's just spend time in the New Testament. We'll just get rid of the Old Testament. There are some some preachers that teach that. It's not so. Stephen says they're all connected. It's all one story. And the more we know that story, the more we're going to fall in love with Jesus and the more eager we're going to be to tell other people about that wonderful, wonderful story. So don't shortchange, okay? Don't shortchange. When you get a chance to be a witness, when you get a chance to give that gospel presentation or that conversation, whatever it might be, be prepared. Take note cards. Be able to tell the whole story. We spend our life in church studying about the story. Surely, we can tell the whole story. Next time we meet, I'll be talking about Paul. And he's the last one. The first uh, Sunday in November, and we're going to be talking about Paul or Saul. Same guy, just changes how he uses his name. And we're going to talk about him. So I don't know how I'll do that in one service, but... We'll see what happens.